This is the Cajun Strong Style Podcast. 1037 The Game's exclusive pro wrestling podcast. Making his way to the podcasting ring. Hailing from the heart of Cajun country. It's me. It's me. It's the world famous CD. Let's ring the bell and get this party started off right. And welcome everyone to the Cajun Strong Style Podcast. 1037 Games exclusive pro wrestling podcast. Appreciate you listening in. However, you're doing so, because like, we got so many different ways to do so. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and so, so much more. Once again, appreciate you listening in. Let's waste a little time and get into what's causing all this with the three count. And it starts off with some big news over in the land of the rising sun. We'll get to more of it a little bit later. But we got to talk about B. Priestley leaving stardom and Japan during their most recent stardom show, B. Priestley Challenge. Utami, I'm going to probably mispronounce this. I'm going to do as best I can. Haya Shishida for the World of Stardom Championship. Priestley lost the match and then was uncharacteristically nice in the post-match promo, even going so far as to patch things up with Momo Watanabe. I don't know why that was so hard to pronounce. But Priestley followed this up by announcing that she was saying her goodbyes to not only stardom, but Japan. I'm not sure if AEW or WWE is where she goes. It feels like that's probably going to be the landing spot for her in AEW. She has experience there. But who's to say that WWE didn't back up the Brinks truck to try and secure her for NXT UK? Because I think that would be the more intriguing of the two. And mind you, of course, being associated with Will Ospreay got some negative connotations, especially if you want to be part of the black and yellow brand over across the pond. But I think it's an interesting move to see her walk away from Japan after being there for a couple of years and largely just being a full-time part of New Japan and also stardom. Next big news story, or better yet, speculation, rumor, and innuendo, however you want to put it, is a Ring of Honor Hall of Fame has been discussed. It's instituting that. It has been talked about in the past. And COO of the company, Joe Koff, supports the idea and talked about it in the ROH Strong podcast and said, quote, we talk about it. It's not a new thought. This is coming from Fightful, by the way. It's a matter of how, who, when, but most importantly, why. We're getting that start, that part answered. I like the part of 20 years, it's a good number and maybe a place to begin. I definitely think we should have it, and I'd be proud of it. I would have to defer to other people other than myself because I'm only familiar with the talent I've worked with. I was not a regular Ring of Honor watcher. Neither was I, but I think we can definitely kind of surmise who should be at the top of the list. I'll get to that in a second. He goes on to say there are wrestlers that were in Ring of Honor at the time that I know had some historical perspective, but I never saw their work until I saw it in the archives. One of the important things in the Hall of Fame is who we bring in as a nominating group. We'll put a lot of thought behind it, and however it's presented and whenever it's presented, it will be fabulous, end quote. Now, for me, I think the first ROH Hall of Fame class, now obviously the question brings, is this going to be like a WWE Hall of Fame where you let in, I'm not saying let in everybody, but it's a situation where do you allow this to be a five, six person Hall of Fame? Or is this more along the lines of an MLB Hall of Fame? I know we definitely have a lot of gripes about it, but at the end of the day, having a two or three member Hall of Fame, it makes it mean more, and you can stretch out the amount of people you want to have in this elite club, pun not intended, pun intended there. 
about who would be in there. It's all about like the size of it. But let's just say hypothetically, for the sake of the conversation, we go with five for the first ever Hall of Fame class in Ring of Honor history. And I think without a doubt, these are no-brainers. Brian Danielson, Kenta Kobashi, one of the longest reigning champions in Ring of Honor history, had a really great run with ROH. Nigel McGuinness, without a doubt. I mean, this guy, along with Brian Danielson, helped really establish the company for what it is. That Samoa Joe and CM Punk, part of the greatest trilogy in the history of independent wrestling, no doubt in my mind. Samoa Joe, CM Punk had five star had a five star match in the sequel, Joe Punk Two. Which, if you haven't checked that out yet, I'd say go check out Honor Club right now and go get that in your life because that is probably one of the coolest things of all time. And it's a really great trilogy. Watch it from start to finish. Really awesome. Or if you were fortunate enough to get the tapes many years ago, or the DVDs, I should say, because it's hello, that was in two thousand five, no two thousand three, actually two thousand three, two thousand four. But this is some really cool stuff that you need to go check out. But those are the names I'd consider: Brian Danielson, Kenta Kobashi, Nigel McGuinness, Samoa Joe, CM Punk. I'd probably also throw in Xavier as well. Loki, Loki would probably be a guy in the second hall, and I know he definitely has such a big part. The Briscoe brothers, Mark and Jay Briscoe, more specifically, those two definitely deserve to be in that conversation of who's in the Hall of Fame. They are just two guys that probably be in that second or third Hall of Fame class. Now, if they, whenever they do retire, they would be first bout Hall of Famers. I think that's the other thing we need to talk about here is these are guys that are either retired or haven't been with the company for a long time. That needs to be one of the big requirements. So obviously, how this committee comes together is anybody's guess, but I think those are the five guys. And, of course, it's if it's a five-person Hall of Fame class, it could be a two- or three-person Hall of Fame class per year. And if that were the case, it'd be Brian Danielson, CM Punk, Nigel McGuinness, those three guys. All three no would be no longer active by the time they hypothetically do launch this thing in 2022, or at least not full-time. Now, obviously, you run into the issue of Nigel McGuinness working for WWE, Ryan Danielson working more in a part-time role for WWE come 2022. And CM Punk just being CM Punk. That that's a that's an issue, but I think you could get this arranged and make it work. Now, one final bit of news, and this involves Chris Jericho. A big surprise popped up on Twitter. I believe this was on April Fool's Day before the weekend. And then on Good Friday, we get really Great news if you're a fan of the Stone Cold show, Broken Skull Sessions, exclusively now on Peacock in the U.S. And, you know, if you're out there listening in in Spain or whatever, because I don't, we do have a couple occasional listeners on the, on the Spotify through that realm. You can check it out on the WWE Network. But Chris Jericho is going to appear on Broken Skull Sessions. The former undisputed WWE champion is among the most decorated superstars in sports entertainment history. This is coming from the press release, and he'll return to WWE programming for the first time in about three years as a guest of the Broken Skull, as a guest of Stone Cold's on the Broken Skull Sessions. And Stone Cold said, what? I was having a beer one night. What? After my Broken Skull Sessions interview with The Undertaker, Aaron and Nile Blue, Chris, Chris Jericho texted me and said, man, that was a great interview. I sent him back a couple of those emojis. What? One of a beer mug. What? The other of an eagle. What? And then called me right then and there. All right, I'm sorry. I'm going to go ahead and just get away from that. We got to talking. They've always respected the hell out of his career. I'm glad they're around. 
it gives the, these guys and girls in professional wrestling more places to work. This is more uh, related to AEW. And he said, I would love to have you on the show. And he said he'd love to do it. So I checked with Vince McMahon about it. He texted him. He had this badass idea about Jericho coming on the show. And Vince says, it's cool. Go ahead. But me and Vince don't always do well on, with phones and text all that. So I texted him one more time. He's like, what? Okay, that's it. Are you sure it's okay to have Chris Jericho on the show? And Vince gave him the thumbs up, and Chris came out to do the show. And, of course, that's going to be coming out on WrestleMania Day, or, or what would be Day 2 of WrestleMania, which I am absolutely – I'm probably more excited about that than anything else because, <laughs> you know, WrestleMania, it's going to be a fun show over the course of two nights, but at the same time, just the card isn't, like, amazing, at least to me. But still, really good stuff. Can't wait to see what happens down the road with this on Sunday. We'll definitely probably get into it a little bit, especially if we get some more controversial stuff. Because I've, I have a feeling this is going to be very much looking back at his WWE career, talking some WCW, but also, you know, probably never mentioning AEW in, like, actual words. Because that just feels like if it happens, the entire internet wrestling community is going to blow the bleep up. Because that's kind of the dirty word. They've said it before on programming. They've outright, they've indirectly referenced it, yes, at the same time, having that name uttered brings a lot of, like, it's a mixed bag. I feel like people are just going to be very divisive if they bring it up and it becomes a little controversial on the podcast. But I'm looking forward to seeing what's going to be talked about on here because I think there's going to be a lot of fun to be had with this because you know Jericho and Austin, they are experts at doing podcasts. They're experts at doing interviews. It's going to be a very fun show, and I'm sure it'll be north of two hours. And I'm looking forward to watching every single minute of it. I might not watch it after WrestleMania, but I'm definitely going to be watching it the second it comes out on demand because I feel like this is one that you have to not basically tee up at like 9, 10 o'clock because 90% of the people who are watching, especially if they're watching on Peacock, because the Peacock app on the PS4 is a pile of dog you-know-what. Because I did not like that not one bit. But still, that's going to be tremendous to see what's going on with the Broken Skull Sessions. Another reason why you should be tuning in to WrestleMania this week. And of course, it is WrestleMania week, and we've got a star-studded lineup of shows on tap for you and yours. And we're going to get to that momentarily. And of course, it's WrestleMania week. You know what that means. we got a lot of things to get to. And we're going to drop six, count them six, podcasts. This is the first of many on the Cajun Strong Style Podcast as we make those final steps towards the show of shows. And it's going to be a tremendous week of podcasting here. And you can check them out, as always, through 1037thegame.com. All your favorite podcast gimmicks. Just search Cajun Strong Style. And, of course, it's a big week this week. We start off with a regular podcast tomorrow. Top five WrestleManias of all time. And also we'll get some NXT TakeOver stand and to deliver nights one and two predictions. Wednesday, a special WrestleMania prediction episode. We're bringing out the big guns and we're going to have a lot of fun with that. Then Thursday, AEW Dynamite recap. 
Also, maybe some thoughts on the WWE Hall of Fame that happened earlier in the week. Friday, NXT TakeOver. Stand and deliver. Nights 1 and 2. A little bit of a recap for that. As well as maybe some quick thoughts on NXT TakeOver UK Prelude. Or whatever you whatever they call that thing. It's weird. But I'm looking forward to talking about that as well. Then we wrap it all up on Saturday with a final Nitro. 20 years later edition of the podcast. A little retro to wrap things up in a nice little bow. Mind you, this is planned whenever the original date of WrestleMania was. It was going to coincide with the 20th anniversary of the final Nitro of all time. But lo and behold, things move, things change. But I wanted to watch it. This is the last thing I ever watched on the network. So trust me, I was pretty happy about being able to, in my time as a WWE Network subscriber, watching this show. All right, now let's get into some pro wrestling. And yesterday, they had Sakura Genesis 2021. Wasn't necessarily going to talk about it all that much. I had it marked down on the calendar. But then the show happened, and I was definitely intrigued by some of the stuff I saw on Sunday morning after I woke up. Because obviously, I'm not staying up till like 1, 2 o'clock in the morning to watch a show from start to finish from Japan. That being said, this was a really good show Overall, it was definitely more of a two-match show, and I'll kind of explain why in a little bit. If you've ever watched a New Japan show, that's kind of how it goes. But it started off with Hiromu Takahashi opening up the show, hyping up the card for some reason, and he had those confetti poppers. It did nothing with him, which also threw me off. I was like, what the hell is going on here? Then he winds up jumping up on commentary in Japan while Kevin Kelly and the crew are doing the show remotely, and that's going to become a big like issue for me throughout the show because there are moments where the technical issues pop up, and, again, I just can't stand it whenever somebody's outright bringing up the issues as they happen on the show because it definitely takes you out of the suspension of disbelief that everything's going to work out perfectly. You never really heard much of that in the past in pro wrestling. It's like, it's mind you, it's always live. And you have somebody actually there doing commentary. But New Japan is a different conversation. You've got three guys, and they're all doing the show remotely from their own homes. It makes sense the reason why they're doing that, but there's moments where it takes you out of it. But we start off with a six-man tag Suzuki Gun, the team of Dookie, Tai Chi, and Zack Sabre Jr. taking on Bullet Club and Jado, Tamatanga, and Tonga Loa. And both teams immediately, before, like right when the bell rings, they just start brawling like crazy while the in-ring action starts with Dookie and Jado. And it was, it was a fine match. It was solid enough. The Iron Fingers came into play late, but Suzuki Gun was able to avoid getting hit with it. And, of course, the Iron Fingers belonging to Tai Chi. But you wound up having Zack Sabre Jr. get the win for his team with the European Clutch, which looks like a great move, by the way, on Tongaloa. So Suzuki Goon gets the night started off with the win. The Bay Faces, if you will, wound up getting the win there. After the match, Naoki Sugabayashi took the Iron Fingers and left ringside with them. All of a sudden, Tai Chi is just distraught. Weird post match angle. I get it because that's his signature. But at the same time, you know, Zack Sabre Jr. winds up showing a lot more appreciation for Tai Chi and says he's better than that. He doesn't need that. Obviously, the team of dangerous techers also, more importantly, set themselves up for a potential rematch down the line. I know they got a lot of shows coming up for New Japan, so I'm certain they'll get a rematch before too long, probably once things are all said and done. And Kevin Kelly kind of reset that. And maybe you remember that they had actually lost the titles back at Wrestle Kingdom, and then Dangerous Techers deserves a rematch. Again, down the line, probably late April. Then we get to a 
big multi-man tag team match. This is a 10-man tag with Chaos, Oroki Goto, Kazuchika Okada, Tomohiro Ishii, Toriyano, and Yoshihashi taking on the Bullet Club. Dick Togo, Evil, Kenta, Taiji Ishimori, and Yujiro Takahashi. Kenta has Yoshihashi's bow staff. That's kind of the basis of the feud between those two. And he winds up kissing it, which is a little weird, but whatever. Bullet Club, you know, I'll say this about Bullet Club. They suck now. Because instead of having, you know, absolute monsters being kind of the leader of the group, the leader of the pack, if you will, you've got Evil and Dick Togo and Kenta running things. It's nowhere near the same. You got Tom and Tonga and Tongaloa, and you obviously got Gato and Jado. But that's not the same for me. Like, I just can't get into this group. And it's more because of the fact the last year. I mean, outside of them, who do you have that's a real threat? Taiji Ishimori? Yujiro Takahashi is the furthest thing from a threat. From a threat excuse me. And Dick Togo just needs to go-go and get out of here. Not a huge fan of this. I think the, those two especially, Evil, Dick Togo, just don't do anything for me. And it hurts the overall strength of the stable in my mind. But we get an immediate pull-apart brawl for the second straight match. These two are just going at it all across the ring. And it starts with Ichi, Ishimori and Goto starting the match off. And it's a blazing pace. This thing is just going back and forth. At one point, Dick Togo gets in the ring. And everybody starts beating him up. And Kevin Kelly, line of the night. A classic instance of phrasing. I'm going to say it. It's phrasing. They're just kicking Dick like they don't care, which is a great line out of context, and even in context, it's tremendous. Fine match, and of course, Toriano winds up getting a win. It was a cheeky little inside cradle win. After blindfolding Togo, please, for the love of God, do not do a damn blindfold match gimmick. I don't need that in my life. Well, a little too long for me, at least compared to other multi-man tags I've seen at the start of shows. It just, it was what it was. It was a fine match. Not much to really write home about. And also, this is more of a criticism of commentary teams doing a remote, not the actual commentators, but Kevin Kelly has mentioned his Wi-Fi going in and out during the finish. It was a little weird to me. He took me out of the end of the match. You could have just had him basically, all right, my thing's acting up. I'm going to shut up, and y'all kind of handle this from here. Y'all finish off the match. Like He could have been like, all right, guys, I'm having some issues. Going to try and fix that. He could have like muted himself and just like mentioned it to somebody that way they could mention it in the commentator's ear. That way it's just not too out of control. Maybe it's just the producer and me is thinking about all the things I would have done to try and, one, avoid that issue, and two, make sure you don't outright mention, oh, wait, what's going on and why these things are popping up. And then we get to a six-man tag all about who is X, who's the next member of the United Empire. It's Great Khan and Jeff Cobb come out first. And it's Toa Hanare. Now he is rebranded Aaron Hanare. And he'll be taking on Los Ingobernables de Japón in Sonata, Shingo Tagaki, and Tetsuya Naito. And I'll say this. Hanare, his look is fantastic. The dude, like, Seth Rollins always talks about drip. This dude has, like, Masahiro Chono-like drip. The swag he has, the attitude, the shades... He looks like a complete, like, badass hitman. And alongside a guy like Jeff Cobb, that's a good way to go about it. Full brawl start things off, of course. I understand the reason for all the undercard multi-man tags, but at this point, I can't, I kind of can't get into it. I want to get to 
the other side of this. So I'm kind of watching it. Good match. Anari goes over, pinning Sonata after Cobb hits it toward the islands, and you know Hanari hits his Death Valley driver on Sonata to get the one, two, three. After the match, they just completely go after Naito's knee and just wail on him with a steel chair. And again, the United Empire has looked great in adding in a rebooted and retooled Toto Hanare, Toa Hanare, excuse me. This seems one to watch in 2021. Now we get to the ace of New Japan, Hiroshi Tanahashi, and Satoshi Kojima after the intermission. I wound up having, it was weird having an intermission, just took a break in between. But you have Hiroshi Tanahashi and Satoshi Kojima taking on Bullet Clubs, Bad Luck Fale, and Switchblade Jay White. And I'm absolutely just loving the fact that we get this. So we get to Kevin Kelly. He's mentioning the technical issues again before the match starts. I mean, couldn't they have been resolved during the intermission? Couldn't we have tried to fix that? But then we get to, before the match, Tanahashi and White have a pose down. Now, Tanahashi, he's an older man, but he looks jacked to the gills. But White looks absolutely shredded. Like, he's got an eight-pack going. Dude is looking real jacked, baby. Real Really love that. Kojima wound up struggling for a good bit of the contest. A lot of that has to do with Fale and White isolating Tanahashi. Really great heel tactics here throughout the match. Eventually, Tanahashi wound up getting the hot tag, really took over the matchup, and got the win after the high fly flow. And then immediately after, and I love the fact that we did this with Tanahashi, hitting the, locking in the clover leaf on Jay White, and White actually taps out. This is the first time he's ever done this in New Japan, but obviously this is an official, this is unofficial, but it sets up a match because Hiroshi winds up accepting White's challenge because he had just tapped out to the JTO standard tag match, but that was a really entertaining contest, and the story that was being told in the ring was really good, and now we get to see Tanahashi and Jay White square off, I believe that's going to be for the Never Open Week Championship, so there's a step in the right direction. Then we got, if you didn't see New Japan Strong, and you know a lot of people don't necessarily do, but they announced that they're going to put it on the New Japan Strong Openweight title match. They're going to announce that as part of their weekly show. It's essentially something for the U.S. guys to fight over until things are hopefully normal, and more importantly, since Moxley has the U.S. title. And really, doesn't have a whole lot to do at the moment. Now, obviously, there is a plan that they announce like hours after the show. With John Moxley, he's going to be taking on Yuji Nagata. He, he challenged out the legend, which, by the way, if we see Nagata Moxley, hell yeah, I'm going to watch that pay-per-view maybe live. That should be a lot of fun. Probably going to be one of the probably going to be more of a Dominion show, not one of those baseball stadium shows. At least that's how I think about it. Then we get to the penultimate match of the night: IWGP Junior Heavyweight Tag Team Championship match. Show and Yo taking on Yoshinobu. Ka- Kanemaru and El Desperado is the first match for Yo since he injured his knee against Bushi during the New Japan Cup last year whenever they returned to action after the during the pandemic. Sho and Yo wound up taking the belts due to injury, obviously so, and then Kanemaru and Desperado wound up kind of taking over things. And immediately they're going after the knee. Yo winds up getting put in the Brock Lock, like the stretch muffler. I had not seen that in a long time in actual like pro wrestling in twenty twenty. One, but my God, still looks like a brutal move. Show break broke up the hold. Great sympathy throughout, and the way they were selling the injury through, like 
it's something that I feel like is a lost art in American wrestling. And we saw that done really well between Yo and Kanemaru and El Desperado. Really good match. But it was also weird. Like, I'm so used to seeing, you know, guy tapping on the mat like crazy. That typically means it's a tap out. But no, he was actually, like, not tapping out. He's trying to, like, rally the troops. He's having to bang on the mat. And it's like, wouldn't that be, like, an audible tap out? But it wasn't, which was, again, really weird. But I liked the entire angle. Kanemaru went for deep impact, but Sho kept the minute after breaking up the pin because deep impact is, again, New Japan loves to do this, and it works really well. And protecting a lot of moves, and the way they talked about it, whenever he hit it, it's like, that should be the finish. But no, you wound up having them break it up. Then the rally wound up beginning after that. Yo hits a single leg drop kick. The two look for a strong X, but Kanemaru crotches Yo. Then you have Kanemaru hit a superplex that goes for about 2.75, but he looks for deep impact once again, but took a kick to the gut. Then Strong X nearly gets the win, but Desperado stops the pin. Show pulls Desperado to ringside, and Yo finished it off with a beautiful spin-out butterfly suplex to win the match. And we have new IWGP Junior Heavyweight Tag Team Champions. And God, that match ruled probably my favorite match of the night. Redemption story is always going to work. It just makes perfect sense. And Yo actually winds up challenging Desperado for the junior heavyweight title after thanking the fans for their support while he was recovering from his injury. Again, great semi-main event. Probably my match of the night without question, without doubt. Now let's get to the IWGP World Heavyweight Championship match. Will Ospreay taking on Kota Ibushi. It was so strange on seeing the classic IWGP heavyweight title video package now that it's a new title belt. It's a new lineage. Very strange. Solid start between the two. A little slow in terms of the pacing, but it makes sense. It's a slow start. You want to build towards that crescendo. It's a lot like when you hear a really good performance. You want to start out slow. You don't want to come out extremely hot. Now, sometimes it helps matters if you're going to come out extremely hot. Like, let's say, a junior heavyweight or X-Division match to start off a show. It's a great move. But in the main event, you've got to build towards that crescendo because that's what everybody's going to remember. It's going to be all about the finish. Really solid start. At one point, Osprey hits a front kick that almost knocks them both out the ring that looked brutal-looking, and then he hit him with a back suplex on the barricade. And again, it's something I notice more and more is Osprey changed his has changed his style a lot since shifting into the leader of the United Empire and also becoming a heavyweight. Also love no outside interference with the group at ringside. They did the same thing in the New Japan Cup, and they're keeping it consistent. That's a great thing to see. Have to give credit to him to, for changing the way he wrestles. The Tree of Woe spot was amazing. Credit to Kelly and crew for bringing up some of the injuries they've both been dealing with, Abushi's knee and Osprey's nose as well. Abushi, the set at last ride is absolutely an amazing move and should be treated like an alternate finisher. Like, basically use that at the last second. But love that. At one point, Osprey winds up getting Abushi knocked down, hanging off of the top rope. I'm thinking, oh, they're going to do the Nyla Rose move. No. He went for a shooting star press on him and then hit two of them for like a 2.9. Oh, my God. And that second one? Beautiful. I mentioned the fact he's changed his ring style. Clearly not all that much. This was so damn good. At this point, the match is just amazing. Abuji at one point looks blown up, but he still pulls off some really, 
really cool stuff, like a super poison Rana attempt. Osprey lands on his feet. And this is a, at this point, this is when the protagonist in anime has to reach that next level in order to win. And he kind of does that. Will goes to the outside after a poison Rana. Then he hits Osprey with a deadlift German on his previously injured neck. And it looked brutal on the bump. Like it looked like it took the majority of it on his neck and upper back. Then Ibushi winds up showing homage to Shinsuke going for the Bomaye knee, but Osprey counters with a gorgeous Spanish fly. Holy hell. Then he winds up going for the Oscar, hits it for 2.9. Will goes for the Stormbreaker. Kota counters, hits a pair of Kamagoye knees and gets a two. At this point, you're like, they're actually going to bleep and do this thing. They're actually going to go ahead and give him the title. And he does. He hits a brutal bicycle bicycle knee, and it's just straight up like Ibushi crumbled the second that hit. Then he follows it up with hitting blade to the back of the head. Stormbreaker, we have a new IWGP World Champion. The English commentary team, needless to say, shocked at the result, and I felt the same way. You know, After all the controversy from the angle they did with B. Priestley during the New Japan Cup Final, they doubled down. And went ahead with Osprey winning the title in Ibushi's first defense of this new title. Great match, but not a fan of the result at all in my mind. It doesn't ruin Ibushi to me. It doesn't make him look like a geek. Because at the end of the day, he lost clean as a whistle. He didn't lose because of outside interference or any BS. He lost straight up 1-2-3 to one hell of a competitor. So at the end of the day, I can't hate that. But after the match, Jeff Cobb obliterates Ibushi. Kevin Kelly furious at what just happened. Osprey celebrates his new title and says that God is dead on a Easter Sunday, bruv. Is that what you really just did? Come on now. Like, that is a bad idea from Jump Street. After the match, has a great post-match promo, and then he winds up pissing me off a lot because he referenced Conor McGregor's I'd like to apologize to absolutely nobody. The IWGB champ does what he wants. Come on now. Did you really have to rip off Conor McGregor's iconic promo? Did you really need to do that? No, I don't think so. Afterwards, he called out Okada to get revenge for his loss at Wrestle Kingdom back in January. But Shingo wants to come out and has none of this. He wants the first crack at him since they faced off the New Japan Cup. And he beat Okada in the first round of the tournament. So we'll have Shingo in the first defense for Osprey, And then they'll, whoever wins that, is going to face Okada for the World Heavyweight Championship. Okay, show, two title matches were the only things really worth watching. Six-man with the revelation of X being Toa Hanari, or excuse me, Aaron Hanari now. That was really cool. But at the end of the day, it was a two-match show with a cliffhanger to make you intrigued about what was going on in the undercard. The two title matches just were markedly better. The overall show and the presentation was okay. And we got a couple questions this week for the Cajun Strong Style Podcast. We'll, we'll answer one question in particular this week from a guy, Joe M., on Twitter saying, How great is Rowdy Roddy Piper? Because he replied to us largely because he saw the awesome gif we had of it on, on, our, on our Twitter page. But you can follow us on Twitter at CAJN Strong Style. So if you have any questions you want us to answer, We'll get to him each and every single week. Also, i got a fine story of you'll get to in a moment, and I'll answer the question. How great is Ronnie Piper? He's absolutely one of the GOATs, promo-wise, wrestling-wise. I think he's 
pretty damn good. Worked well as a heel over the years. Had a great track record. But again, I think it's a lot of it has to do with the fact that he was a great promo. He was able to antagonize you enough. And being a great antagonizer, not an antagonator like our regular friend of the program. But there's so many great guys from top to bottom. I loved it because it was so good. Just to see Rowdy Roddy Piper wrestle, put together great matches, and tell great stories. He was one of the best. One of the best to ever do it. Now, where does... Now, Obviously, he never won a WWF title, or any world title for that matter, but it's not about that, I think, with him. He's one of the few guys that it never really needed it. It was more about him being the heel. I mean, it was a different era back then, so needless to say, that changed the entire game, if you will. That's at least just the way I think about it when it comes to Roddy Piper's never-ending legacy. But I mentioned I've got a five-star review this week. By the way, if you have Apple Podcasts, make sure you leave us a five-star review, and also give us a subscribe. Hit that subscribe button on the channel. That way you can just tell us what you, that way you can appreciate us a little bit more. Make sure you never miss a single episode of the Cajun Strong Style Podcast. We're not just on Apple Podcasts, but all the other great podcast gimmicks. It's just that, for whatever reason, iTunes is really the only one that has a rating system. They're like the Dave Meltzer of podcasts, and everybody loves five-star ratings, and we actually got one the other day on March 23rd. Thank you to T. Dixon, 508, for saying, I highly recommend making this podcast a part of your routine if you are a wrestling fan. These guys know their stuff. And also a bunch of emojis, which I can't see because I'm looking out on a desktop because I'm a hashtag Team Android. But appreciate that, T. Dixon, 508. Once again, make sure you subscribe to the Cajun Strong Style Podcast and leave us a five-star review, if you will. Now let's quickly get into the what I'm going to call the catalog of CD. I do a tier list every now and again. I think this one's just so damn good. Only a handful of these matches. The Money in the Bank Mania, if you will. There are only five of these matches ever. So it's easy to kind of break this down into a tier list. We start off WrestleMania 21, Edge, Chris Benoit, Chris Jericho, Christian, Kane, and Shelton Benjamin. The first match ever, the first ever Money in the Bank ladder match, it's always going to be a lot more important for me. Yes, you had a lot of notable spots you saw a lot over the years. Shelton Benjamin was in damn near every single one of them. But for me, this is the best one. This is an all-timer, iconic, so many cool spots throughout that you kept seeing over and over again. Kane with the entrance where the light ladders caught on fire was really badass. And this is just an all-timer. It really proves how important it is to have a good first match like of a certain stipulation. Because if you don't, nobody's ever going to want to see it again. And this is a prime example of how to pull that off right. WrestleMania 22, I think it drops down a little bit. It's legendary status because of the fact you wound up having a really good winner in this. Rob Van Dam, Bobby Lashley, Finley, Matt Hardy, Ric Flair, and Shelton Benjamin. I just feel like it. the fact you had Ric Flair in the match was a little weird. Finley in it, a weird Hornswoggle was involved in it. There was a lot going on. There's a lot of moving parts. But it's just a legendary match nonetheless it's a really good money in the bank rob van dam gets the win and eventually cashes in on john cena really good money in the bank ladder match part Duh. then we get to wrestlemania 23 a lot better i think of a card top to bottom you had mr kennedy cm punk edge finley jeff hardy who had returned late in 2006 king booker right before he headed on out to tna matt hardy and randy orton 
That is a mouthful, and it works so well. Jeff Hardy, obviously the iconic leg drop on edge through the ladder. So many cool spots nonetheless. Mr. Kennedy with the Green Bay plunge on Finley, on Hornswoggle, I should say. All that. Just so damn good. It's not an all-timer. It's an instant classic for me. Right when it happened, like, this is so damn good. WrestleMania 23 definitely deserves a little bit more love in my mind. It's a great pay-per-view. That's up there. 2008, you have WrestleMania 24, CM Punk, Carlito, Chris Jericho, who replaced Jeff Hardy, John Morrison, MVP, Mr. Kennedy, and Shelton Benjamin. This was chaos personified. John Morrison, or as they put him on the Titan, or not on the Titan Tron, but it was like the, the I can't think of the, the LED board surrounding the arena. Actually had labeled it as Jim Morrison. I think this one was a was a legendary match. I think a lot of these are really good. I think this may be one of the weakest ones. And it's the fact that you had just like, you've already seen a handful of them, but it's more car crash entertainment because you see MVP get hit with a twist of fate by the returning Matt Hardy who was back from injury, which was a really cool moment in and of itself. But outside that, it's pretty nondescript. I think it's legendary tier. I'm not going to put any of these in it was a match because saying it was a match about a ladder match just sounds completely contradictory to me. And then we get to WrestleMania 25. CM Punk, Christian, Finley, Kane, Kofi Kingston, Mark Henry, MVP, and Shelton Benjamin. That is a lot of people. And a lot of those guys don't necessarily belong in there. Again, why does Finley keep popping up in these? He doesn't really do anything. He doesn't really do much of note that makes me say, hey, like this is what I'm going to see going forward. This is what I want to see. Not necessarily my favorite. I think I'd much rather see WrestleMania 23. I'm going to put this in. It's, it's hard for me to say because I just said I wasn't going to. But I'm. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and just put it. It was a match. It was fine. It just. I, there's nothing I truly remember about it outside of CM Punk winning. It's probably the weakest one of them all. Then WrestleMania 26. Yeah, Jack Swagger, Christian, Dolph Ziggler, Drew McIntyre, Evan Bourne, Kane, Kofi Kingston, Matt Hardy, MVP, and Shelton Benjamin. Again, Sheldon Benjamin, anytime he's in this, Evan Bourne's in this. Really cool high spots. Christian and Christian put in good work. Drew McIntyre put in good work. Jack Swagger really struggled with the briefcase. There were a lot more really good moments. So I think this is going to be more in the legendary tier. I hate to kind of go back to what I said about it was a match. But WrestleMania 25 was just a, a mediocre-looking match. I mean, the, the, car, the, the rest of the card was really strong and was bolstered by some really classics like the Undertaker's on Michaels match, which we talked about a little bit last week and a few weeks ago when we did our first one. At the end of the day, this was just okay. Like it, after WrestleMania 23, I think they all kind of slowly went down because there wasn't really truly memorable moments from this pay-per-view, from this match. And now we get to see it every year, and those moments are more and more lessened. It's the fact that you, the law of diminishing returns, if you will. But this was still a good enough match in a lot of memorable moments that are still fresh in my mind over 11 years later. WrestleMania 26 may be a middle-of-the-road pay-per-view on the whole, but there's still some really fun, entertaining moments. I think this was one of them. Yes, the Jack Swagger finish. The ending of the match was really weird, but I can't take away from you know somebody not knowing how to unhook a briefcase is what it is. Now let's get to AEW Dynamite. I'm going to go ahead and... A few quick big spots in the show. Obviously, we need to start with the big 
opening contest, Christian Cage taking on Frankie Kazarian. And I was so looking forward to this because this is definitely more of an old school. Obviously, they faced off back in the day in TNA, and they had some indie stuff as well in like 2001. But damn, this was entertaining as hell from start to finish. Christian obviously won with the Unprettier, but man, for a guy that was gone for about six years, Christian truly proved why he's here to outwork everyone. So damn good. Look, I was looking forward to that. And it was really good. And then we got to the exhibition match. I'm going to fast forward a little bit to that one. Because, boy, oh boy, that led to another angle and everybody was kind of divisive about. Because you had Cody Rhodes, QT Marshall taking on each other with Arn Anderson, the special referee, in an exhibition match. No, the records won't change because of this. And it was a solid exhibition. And it ends with QT getting a cheap shot on Arn Anderson. The match is thrown out. It's no contest. Then eventually, a couple Nightmare family members, Nick Camaroto, Aaron Solow, and Anthony Ogogo, wound up attacking everybody else, beat the hell out of them. It's an absolute beatdown. QT Marshall directing traffic. They're throwing everybody all over the place. Then you have, you know, it was crazy to see what was going on. He just, all of a sudden, Ogogo just starts beating down him. And then, you know, Solo is about to try and bust somebody open with a chair. And now it's going to set up a Duval street fight as a house show, which again, it's weird to think of AW doing a house show, but really solid stuff in this card from top to bottom. This was another great highlight. And again, I am more of a fan of stables. I think than most people, because of the fact that it gives us a star, something to do at the end of the day, you need to have something to do. If you're an AEW star, you need to give something. And I think stables and factions are the right way to go about it. Because now you can actually have a conflict involving multiple people. Yes, it's getting to be a little bit overdone. But at the end of the day, it's not like New Japan. New Japan literally has stable wars and it's been going on for years. Chaos, Bullet Club, Suzuki Goon, all those guys. Even, you know, the United Empire now. It's stable wars. That works really well if you're able to book it out long enough. And more importantly, Nobody gets really lost in the shuffle. I think that's the most important thing in all of this. And it's something I don't necessarily complain about a whole lot, but that would wind up being massive to see the story change on how AEW book shows from start to finish. Because now you are pushing, you're pushing stories, you're pushing angles going forward. So I'm, again, looking forward to seeing what's going to happen with this angle. Then we get to, I think, probably my favorite thing of the night, without a doubt, outside of the pinnacle and full-blown brawl within our circle, which was really damn good. So much fun to see those two just absolutely go at it. Of course, Chris Jericho goes over, pours some bubbly out on MGF when it's all said and done. These two just, I mean, this group absolutely brought the heat, destroying a locker room that I think safe to say they might have to pay a little bit after damaging a lot of this, a lot of property damage, if you will. So much fun. But I think it's all about the main event for me. It's Arcade Anarchy. There we go. CD's finally going to get it. And, of course, it's just insane. So many cool, like, bumps and spots. <laughs> Orange Cassie and Kip Sabian brawled around a whack-a-mole machine. Orange Cassie slams his head through it, starts hitting him with a hammer, and then Mira runs him over. <laughs> Thankfully, no train sound effects. But this is so great, just a back and forth. And then at one point, you know, they break out the Legos. 
Taylor attempted superplex saving onto the Legos with saving counters. And powerbomb Taylor onto them. Holy crap, that hurts. But, of course, Orange Cassidy breaks it up at two. Orange Cassidy hits a tornado DDT onto the Legos. And then a beach break on it, but Sabian kicks out at two. That's crazy. But then comes some really awesome stuff. Chris Statlander is back, appearing in a claw machine to take care of Penelope Ford, who takes a Mijinoku driver through a air hockey table. Absolutely going nuts to butts at this point. So damn fun. And they're just going crazy. Of course, Trent Beretta even comes back, showing up in Sue's van. So Again, love the fact that every time there's a big angle with the best friends, Sue winds up in it somehow, someway. Miro winds up grabbing a Mortal Kombat arcade cabinet. Literally just lifts that thing up, showing how much of a massive like monster he is. And the next thing you know, you wind up seeing them throw Miro's face into the... Absolutely loved, 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 loved this angle. Such a good match, start to finish. And then, you know, the good guys got the win. Sabian gets power slammed through tables for the pin by Chuck Taylor. So the best friends win, and the show goes off the air on a happy note. And I just, <laughs> again, loved this show. Really solid stuff, to say the least, from AEW. And they needed that. They needed to have this kind of big performance. Really good stuff. Loved it. And that's about doing for the Cajun Strong Style Podcast. Hopefully you enjoyed it. The first of many podcasts we're dropping all week long. Make sure you subscribe to the Cajun Strong Style Podcast. However, you listen to your podcast gimmicks. We'll talk to you tomorrow with my top five WrestleManias. Also, NXT TakeOver, Stand and Deliver previews. Talk to you later.